Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. Good day, revered one. The Lord directs me to share this with you. As you read the mail, you should sympathize with my current situation. My name is Kayomi Isabella Watumi Guarnza from Port Harcourt, Nigeria. Was narrowly escaped from the tsunami disaster, which affected my also eardrum, and was claimed the lives of my entire family, husband, Joseph Caramel Sunday, and a snake bit my two sons, Hugo and Tom, who went for holidays in Sri Lanka, Malaysia. Kayon, what are you writing? It's my first ever Nigerian 419 scam email. Yeah, but it's full of mistakes and, and weird diction. I know, that's what makes it trustworthy. Anyhow, I am fine, hoping yourselves are too, for as the Bible saying... What shall it profit an orange to wine the whole world and yet lose its Sauvignon? Bye for now. All right, that's it. Aren't you supposed to mention a large sum of money in a concealed overseas account that can only be accessed by some kind of fee? Why would I do that? Uh, so you get money from them? You mean they would send me the money and I would keep it? That wouldn't be ethical. Yeah, that's why it's a scam. I thought it was just a fun thing to do, like tweeting or Instagram. I just wanted to be a part of it. The good news is there's a package for you downstairs. It's a whole case of Dom Perignon from your dead uncle. Really? That is so awesome. I missed him. The guy downstairs says he needs cash to cover the shipping fee. Oh, yeah, of course. Let me just see. You know what? Just take my wallet. If there's not enough cash in there, maybe he can just use a credit card. I knew you'd say that. Anyway, listeners, the next time you hear from me, I'll be popping open some champagne. Meanwhile, here's a show about confidence games. And now his financial advisor is Marty Ponzi, Colin McEnroe. I figured go with a known name. I've heard about the Ponzi. It's, uh, it's well-known in investment circles. I, I thought we'll go with a well-known name. So uh, we are going to talk about hustles. Uh, we're going to talk about gambling. We're going to talk about confidence games. Uh, and our guests today are Maria Konnikova. She's been on the show many times before. Uh, she's a staff writer on psychology and culture for The New Yorker and an author of Mastermind, How to Think Like Sherlock Holmes, and now The Confidence Game, Why We Fall for It Every Time. Joining us in studio is Jack Farrell. Uh, he's the author of Fast Jack, The Last Hustler. It's a memoir about his days as one of the best card and dice mechanics. Is there, we'll explain what that is, actually. Uh, 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 on the eastern seaboard in Germany and a lot of other places. So, um, and there are real, kind of some real differences between the two things that we're g- going to be talking about here today, but there's some real similarities too. Uh, and so, Maria, we're going to begin with you. And just, uh, it, you know, reading this book, I, I had the same reactions I think that a lot of people have reading about stuff like this, which is how can people be so stupid? I mean, you tell this story of, well, the Sylvia Mitchell story is a pretty good example of this uh, woman who, I'll, I'll let you tell it. Tell, tell the story of this uh, woman, I think she's a former dancer or dance instructor or something like that, who is victimized in, in the most insane way possible by a pseudo-psychic. Absolutely. Um, so Sylvia Mitchell is a now infamous psychic who has been jailed, unlike most psychics, um, who who never get caught and never actually end up making it into prison. And she took advantage of this poor woman who had just gone um, – she had just gotten over a breakup. Um, she was in New York moving out of her ex-boyfriend's apartment. And 
she had just lost her ideal job, which was as a dance instructor. Um, she'd lost the love of her life or who she thought was the love of her life. And she stopped by this psychic parlor, Xenia, where, lo and behold, she met Mitchell. And step by step, Mitchell drew her in to this very elaborate scam where she ended up spending thousands of dollars that she didn't have. So she took out, she took the money that was a mortgage on her house that she'd taken as an emergency fund and, since she was a single mother. And she ended up giving it all to Mitchell. And by the time she came to her senses, Mitchell had cashed all her checks, even though she had promised that she was just taking them for quote unquote safekeeping to help her learn to get rid of her wealth, learn to let go of material possessions. And the money was nowhere to be found. And it took a long time for her to finally press charges. All right, and just to put a little uh, button or exclama- exclamation point on that one, too. I mean, part of this was she was told uh, by Sylvia Mitchell that uh, she had been an Egyptian princess and that a lot of her <laughs> problems had come from this overattachment to money, This pro- these problems dating back thousands and thousands of years in previous lifetimes. It dated back to this overattachment to material possessions. So one of the ways that she was going to get over this was she was going to write this check for $27,000 or whatever it was, and Sylvia Mitchell would hold it for her just so mm-hmm. that she would she would have the experience of unburdening herself. She could always get it back, of course, but that's sort of not how things turned out. So one of the things that this story is as good as, as any other one to explore is that question of trust. Now, it seems like an incredibly gullible thing to do, um, but one of the points that you make is ultimately we'd be paralyzed if we didn't trust people. We, we, if we had to cross-check and double-check every single encounter we ever had all day, I mean, we wouldn't be able to function. Absolutely. And trust is actually the evolutionarily advantageous way to go. Because as you say, if we distrusted anyone, every single person we ever met, society wouldn't function, it would fall apart. And what we end up learning when we look at the studies that have been done about trust is that trust ends up being very good on both on a social and a personal level. So socially, societies with higher levels of generalized trust end up doing better economically. They end up more stable, better social institutions. That makes total sense because you have to cooperate to develop and to create these sorts of things. And on a personal level, being trusting is actually correlated with being more intelligent with having a healthier life, with being happier. So these are all positive things. And most of the time, trusting others doesn't get us into trouble. It helps us get ahead. It helps us forge lasting relationships. So Jack Farrell, this is a difference between a lot of what you write about in Fast Jack and a lot of what Maria writes about uh, in her book, in the sense that a, a lot of the action in your book unfolds in backroom craps games, card games, where where there isn't a lot of trust, right? I mean, there, there's sort of a latent assumption. If I, I meet somebody in a coffee shop, I don't, I don't think, well, they might be lying to me. They might be conning me. Uh, they might be trying to take advantage of me. But in a lot of the environments where you operated, that was more of a latent assumption, right? That somebody might be cheating somebody. Yeah, that, that was an assumption. And, and uh because that was the name of the game years ago. Any, anywhere where the, there was private gambling, the larceny was going to surface. And that just happened to be a fact of life. And one of the things that you write about, and I think it's an interesting point, is that nobody really know, wants, cares about you or wants to know that much about you until you start winning, right? And then there's lots of questions? Exactly. Uh, uh, yeah, they, the questions would be fired away as... Uh, uh, as long as if you were winning, if you were losing, they didn't care who you were, or what you were, or 
And uh, but once you started winning the money, they were like FBI agents. They fired the questions at you. Now, there's uh, two things that I saw, I saw in the stories in your book that um, resonate very interestingly with what Maria reports about, about sort of how we function cognitively. So one of them is, like, I, when I'm reading your book and I'm reading about how you and sometimes your associates, your confederates, would work a place like this and, and pull a lot of money out of it, I, I find myself thinking, first of all, I wouldn't have the nerve to stay there after you'd won as much as you'd won or to go back there the next day or the next day. But you're able to do that and victimize sometimes the same people over and over again. And and it's I assume it's A, because once people have lost a lot of money, they want to win some of it back from you, right? Yeah, and a lot of them were degenerate gamblers, and and that was just the nature of the beast, and and uh, also, uh, when I any business I did, it was like making a movie. Uh, I was the director, and I was the the main player, and and you have to make a good movie to make it believable. That's what I did all my life. Right, and so that's storytelling. We're going to come back to that in a second because that's really important, and that's in Maria's book too. But I want to just there are like lots of little cognitive points that Maria makes, and then you read Jack's book, and, and they're there. So one of the things that you do write about Maria is this notion of sunk cost. Like after you've lost ten thousand dollars to Jack Farrell, you probably should walk away as opposed to continuing to play. But that's not actually how we're wired, right? That's exactly right. So it's called the sunk cost fallacy for a reason, because what we do is instead of rationally walking away and realizing, okay, we've already spent this money, we should just take it, write it off as a loss and not lose any more. What we end up doing is investing even more because we want to rationalize and justify the fact that we've already spent this money. And it's not even the case of gambling. There's a really interesting study where people who've bought tickets that were expensive to a show that they didn't even want to go to would act would go in a snowstorm and drive for hours and hours to get that and that you know that so much time effort energy and you don't even want to go see the show but instead of saying you know what we've already bought the tickets it's a sunk cost you want to invest even more resources into it you know, Jack, another thing I think that worked in your favor is also a notion, uh, and tell me if I'm wrong about this, that when people are gambling and things aren't going their way and maybe are going your way or the way of one of your confederates, that they think the, it's going to turn at some point, that that's the way the world works. It can't be the case that the dice turn up this way every time or that the same person wins all the time, that there's sort of a natural probability that things will get better. Yeah, and most gamblers they have visions of grandeur, and, and they, uh, they they like the the adrenaline flow too. The the fact that they're gambling, it's a big high. Gambling is, I personally, I think gambling is 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 probably the strongest vice there is. Stronger than being an alcoholic or a drug addict, it's it's so compulsive, and and uh, and. Uh, these are the people we would target, a lot of them. So, yeah, in Maria's world, they'd be studying the release of dopamine and all kinds of other pleasure-causing chemicals in your head when you're, when you're winning. But when you're losing, it's a different thing. So, Maria, and I thought this was—we did a whole show um, about um, half a year ago about pattern recognition. And I, I'm not sure we actually got to this part. It's really, really interesting. So we think we can recognize patterns. Um, and we can recognize patterns. It's one of the things that it kind of allows us to function, that we can see patterns out in the world. But, Maria, one of the things that you point out is that we're actually kind of kind of bad at recognizing certain patterns, even when it becomes clearer. There was this really interesting experiment. I don't know. Could you easily des- de- describe that check and plus experiment? 
experiment? I know it's a hard thing to explain, but it, it, it makes a great point. Sure, sure. Um, so this experimenter said, basically, I am going to say check or plus, but before I say it, I'm going to say now, and you're going to have to predict what I'm going to say, check or plus. Okay, so that's fine. But he actually wasn't saying them in a random order. Um, he had certain people listened to uh, instructions where there were more checks, a lot more checks or a lot more pluses or a pretty equal amount. And what he found was that people, even though theoretically we should recognize that, hey, we should be guessing check because there are many more checks in here, you know, 75% checks, they end up really disliking it when a lot of checks come in a row. So after two, three, they start guessing plus, even if they should be guessing check just because it makes them ridiculously uncomfortable to see that sort of a streak. And the more in a row you have, the more inaccurate they become. And so, Jack, I mean, that goes back to one of the ways that you were able to succeed, right? These people should be able to recognize a pattern. This game isn't isn't proceeding randomly, that, in fact, you know, things are breaking a certain way a lot more often than they should if things were completely random. But people aren't good at that, right? They, they're actually uncomfortable believing that. Well, most of them don't even notice it, but, <laughs> but when you... Uh, when you're doing what I did for fifty over fifty years in a dice game or card game, the unnatural hmm. happens because I alter the odds by switching dice or switching cards or cold decking. So I totally alter the odds and but the player doesn't recognize that. He might go home and think about it that evening, but you don't make it uh so landrous that, that uh that they can recognize it, but it's there if they really observe it. It's really there. And any time ha- I've ever had a problem gambling, it's always from an outsider, one that is not participating because his adrenaline isn't flowing, he's not caught up in the in the action, and he's just an observer. He's watching maybe his brother-in-law or his brother gambling with us. And that's when you ha- that's when I used to have a big problem when it was someone that was not participating but was just observing. And, Maria, I would assume that makes sense to you, too, based on what you learned about um, about the, the people who win and the people who lose. Absolutely. Actually, I was going to jump in anyway and say that that is the absolute pattern that you see when it comes to cons. People who are in it, who are emotionally involved, their emotions are running on high. They are so hot that they stop thinking rationally. They don't see red flags. They're just totally blind to them. To an outside observer, it looks like a huge red flag. They say, how can you not see this? And this is that person standing by who's not actually involved. What they don't understand is that they are looking at it from incredibly different perspectives because when your emotions are turned on high, you stop thinking rationally. You can't. And so I would say, you know, always have that outside observer with you um, and listen to them. And yet we don't listen to them. If we're in that gambling situation, even if it's not actual gambling, if it's a con, we don't want to listen to outside advice. We want to keep on believing. So, Jack, let me ask you, me, me, you about your emotions, too, and your brain chemicals. This is You did a very dangerous job for a very long time, and you, for the most part, were able to do very well at it and, and to profit from it. But not all the time. Your book is full of these, some of, of these very narrow scrapes where maybe somebody would figure something out but ultimately let you go. And then th- things that really aren't escapes, right? I mean, you know, you, you paid for this. You got beat up. You, got, you, you had to go to prison. 
but somehow or other you kept coming back to this, right? So there's something about it that you liked too. Yeah, well, with me, a lot of it, it wasn't even, I don't think, it. I can't figure it, I haven't figured it out yet, but I don't think it was totally about the money mm-hmm. because money came easy to me and it, it wasn't. It was the, I was in command. Uh, uh, if you were playing against me, I controlled your money and I controlled you. I controlled the outcome of the game. And that was big to me. And, and, uh, and the adrenaline flow with me living on the edge and, and the, being the attention, I had all the attention. If uh, if someone called me from Europe, called me in Europe, uh, like say in Greece, uh, and I didn't know him too well, and he was a, a new agent of mine, I would tell him he has to send my plane ticket. And if I really didn't trust him, I'd say, if the game is so good, then send me 5000 cash, and I'll be on the next plane. <laughs> and every agent I treated differently. Some I had gave total trust, but a lot of them I didn't. And they'd have to give me money in advance before I would show up. And that was just uh, just the way I worked it. Well, a lot of what you have to do is be a good student of human nature, right? Positively. Yeah. Positively. Thousand percent. Tell us about that. Like, how, how do you size somebody up? Well, I, uh, I ran a lot of Vegas-style dice games. And there, there were probably a Las Vegas table that probably there's probably 15 to 20 people that are shooting dice. And as each one would would play would shoot dice or shoot the dice, uh, I would I would uh, study them or study her. And by the time they all finished, I would have a good idea of each individual and how I was going to handle them. Whether I, if they were hostile, if they were passive, uh, I wouldn't know how to handle that personality. And that's that's what I did all my life. Uh, weighing up the personality was very important. It was. It was a major factor with me. It was the major factor. And, and I mean, uh, maybe elaborate on this a little bit more, too. So it's not that if I'm hostile or I'm passive or I'm uncertain or, or whatever, that disqualifies you, me from dealing with you as far as you're concerned. You're just going to handle me a little bit differently? Like, how would you handle me differently? Let's say I'm a hostile guy. You, you figure that out right away. Well, first, I'd probably uh, find out what nationality you are. And you being Irish, I would, <laughs> I would attack that part of you Yeah. <laughs> because I know you're pretty proud of that. And yeah. most of us are. Most of us are, are proud of our heritage. And I would try to get a one-on-one base, uh, uh, friendship or, or a conversation with you, and uh, I would that would be my objective to to turn you and make you part, uh, make you enjoy my company or like me. All right, Maria's th- thinking when the paperback version of the Confidence Game comes out, she wants to have talked uh, to Jack at greater length. I think Maria Konnikova is with us. This uh, and Jack Farrell, who's the author of Fast Jack, The Last Hustler. Again, Maria's book, The Confidence Game: Why We, Why we Fall for It Every Time. So, Maria, you're listening to this guy talk, and he it really is like he's just from a missing chapter in your book, right? This whole idea of sizing people up is something you come back to a lot. The people who are really good at this can do it. Absolutely. And it's even it, it has a name. It's called the put up. And it's the first step of any successful con. And in some ways, it's the backbone of the con, because if you size someone up correctly, you can sell them absolutely anything. So there are con artists like Victor Lustig, the count who ended up selling the Eiffel Tower, not once, but twice. It's one of the most famous cons of the early 20th century, because he was able to size up his marks mm-hmm 
so incredibly well. That's psychological profiling. So what Jack was talking about, you know, I just I, I have little light bulbs of recognition going off every <laughs> second because that's that's exactly what you have to do. And your approach does differ. The great con artist doesn't have a set playbook that says, okay, first I say this, then I say this, then I say this. Instead, he knows exactly how to sell you what you most want to buy. And by you, I mean you personally, Colin. Yeah, well, exactly. And Jack was just describing how he was basically going to get going to get me to like him. And this, yeah. Maria, is something that you found too. I mean, I think you found it personally that 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 that's a a technique. Absolutely. You learn as much about the person as you can. So you're Irish. Um, I know your name. I I can use these things to actually try to get you to trust me because this this seems elementary, but you have no idea how often people can't actually remember someone's name. And so when someone does remember your name, lo and behold, you really like them because you say, oh, what a great person you are because clearly you remembered someone as important as me. And then when you're saying, oh, you're Irish, you know, we have so much in common, I'm Irish too. And suddenly you're telling, you're talking about different things and you're friends. And friends are people that you trust, you like this person. And I found when I was talking to con artists that they did this to me. And I knew that they were con artists and it still worked. You still feel incredibly flattered that they've taken the time to of do their homework, that they know stuff about you. Some of them would quote my articles back at me. I'd think they were the awesomest people ever until I realized, wait, wait, no, stop. This is a con artist. This is not good. <laughs> so, um, you know, Jack, this is something that I think really jumps out in your book, too. That, and it's not just at the gambling tables, but it's figuring out what's important to somebody, right? It's um, actually one of the really fascinating figures in your book is Billy Grasso. Billy Grasso is a guy, I mean, I've been a journalist here in Connecticut a long time. I didn't intend to write about this kind of stuff, but everybody knows who Billy Grasso was. Is this really kind of like straight out of the Sopranos um, organized crime figure. And you think about those guys and you think that all they really want to f- do is get as much money as they possibly can. But even in the case of Billy Grasso, a guy who really knew the game, you, you write in your book that at a certain point you could see Billy Grasso change and something became more important to him than just getting money. Yeah, and it was um, – uh as the years went by, Billy was very successful at what he did. He was probably, and I met a lot of up and down the East Coast, I met a lot of uh, La Casa Nostra members, and Billy was on top of the list of getting the job done. Mm-hmm. And and he, uh, he accumulated a lot of money, but all of a sudden something changed in him where the power became the factor, not the money. It was He had the money. Now the power be- became... Uh, uh, and he totally, totally changed. It was all about the power with him. The money was flowing in, but but he just changed, and it was a scary change for everybody, for everyone, and, and uh, that's what evidently uh, led to his demise. His untimely demise, yes. yes. All right, so we have to take a little break here. We're with Maria Konnikova and Jack Farrell. Their books are The Confidence Game, in Maria's case, and Fast Jack, and uh, Jack Farrell's game will, uh, case will come back after this. You can get away with anything It all comes down to style You'll have a captive audience As long as you be All right, we're back. Uh, we're talking about hustles and cons. Uh, we're talking to Maria Konnikova, the author of The Confidence Game, Why We, Why we Fall For It Every Time, uh, and uh, Jack Farrell, uh, author of Fast Jack, The Last Hustler, his 
John Farrell and his author title. That's his memoir uh, about a life uh, playing uh, very dangerous games at times with uh, rigged dice and cold decks and lots of other things in uh, in gambling rooms uh, all over the world, really. So, um, and by the way, if you've been going to the movies a lot and if you saw Black Mass, uh, there's uh, Whitey Bulger scenes uh, in this book. I mean, Jack's gotten into cars with Whitey Bulger and Steve Flemmy. Uh, there's uh, also some scenes straight out of Bridge of Spies, too, because Jack was uh, working hustles in Germany right around the same time of the Gary Powers Exchange and stuff like that, too. So uh, it really is, uh, if you've seen those two movies, uh, you can flesh out your understanding of those two scenes a, a bit reading Jack's book. So, um, Maria, I'm going to start with you. Jack is uh, really good, got really, really good at at feats of, of sleight of hand, basically, slipping rigged dice into a game, doing these cold deck substitutions, which he explains in great detail. But it, that's not enough. It's not enough, and you can tell reading his book, it's not enough uh, to get you through, that you've got to have all these other skills. One of them we already talked about, that sizing people up. But there's also storytelling. So, Maria, I'm going to first of all start with you, and then I'm going to give, have Jack give an example of how he used storytelling uh, to further his aims. But one thing that you discovered, Maria, was um, con artists are good storytellers. Oh, absolutely. I think that's crucial to what they do. And even if you think about people whose cons rely only on sleight of hand, like three-card Monty operators, they're also creating narrative drama. They're not just operators. They are screenwriters. They are figuring out what is the arc of the story. How do I get you emotionally invested? How do I get you to trust me and to be part of this? And you see it with magicians too. I mean, the best magicians aren't the ones who are the most dexterous. They're the ones who tell the best story so that they can manipulate your attention the way that they want to so that you don't even see their tricks. You don't see them coming. That's exactly what con artists do. They weave these stories that you want to hear You become a part of the story, and then you're emotionally invested in it. And at that point, it becomes almost impossible to pluck you out of it and to say, hey, I think you might be getting conned. You don't want to hear it because this is your story. You're part of the narrative. And so, Jack, uh, let's do some storytelling or show how you use storytelling. So you're over in Germany. You're working a club there, um, and you know that. uh, And one of the things that you do, first of all, is – you hang around there not winning for a while. First of all, you hang around not playing, just getting letting people get to know you. Then you hang around not winning. You just play the game straight. Uh, so you either win or lose, depending on actually how the dice roll. You, so you do all of this before you start slipping your dice into the game. This goes on for days and days, maybe weeks and weeks. But then you start winning. And then, as we said at the beginning of the show, the minute you start winning, there's a lot of questions. Who is this guy? So what happens then? Well, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, uh, we call it winning heat. And I had a partner, there were just two of us in the game, myself and my partner was a Greek named Yorgo Vasilaris, and it was at a Greek club on the street, it was Konstras in, in West Berlin, it was about 1979. And uh, b- by the way, West Berlin was an extremely intriguing city, the wall was still up, didn't come down till 89, and, and it was really exciting for me, and I loved it. But uh, we were taking off this dice game, and now the questions started coming, and and no one knew that Yorgo and I were friends or partners. And after I would leave, everybody would ask me, ask Yorgo, where's this guy come from? What did he do, fall out of the sky? Who is he, this American? And uh, finally, I contrived, I come up with a story that I went to the uh, the major army base in, in the West, West Berlin, and 
And as luck would have it, I caught a a young uh, Army guy, 19 years old, and and, uh, he was from Springfield, Mass. And I propositioned him. I gave him $500 to go in and get me a uniform, and uh, an officer's uniform, by the way. And uh, I gave him another 500 for the uniform. And and uh, about a week later, after I had it tailored, because uh, you, you never saw um, United States military wear uniforms in downtown. It was just too dangerous. Yeah, I think you all remember when the disco was blown up in downtown Berlin. And uh, I wore the uniform. I had a, I wore a raincoat and took the taxi to the to the club and. And uh, I walked in. I took the raincoat off before I went in. I walked in, and and uh, no one could believe it that this is. I didn't even tell them what I was. They knew who I was. They knew I was a colonel in the, in the United States Army. And I went on and played, and and probably another two weeks after that, is the the game just broke up because it dissipated. The money was in Yorgo's pocket and my pocket, and the game was over. And that's how I. I got over this this hurdle. You know, I want to ask you a couple of other things about this and, and then throw it back to Maria because I think this this story also has some things in it that maybe illustrate some differences between you as uh, a guy running gambling, gambling hustles and some of the um, con men that Maria writes about because I noticed a couple of things. One of them was that you in particular were there to victimize a couple of guys from Hamburg who were pimps and dope dealers and that your contempt for them is there in the pages of the book and, and you're there to clean them out as much as you can. Um, and you've already cased them out. You've sized them up. You know about them. You know that they're coming before they even get to Berlin. Meanwhile, there's a guy, I think his name is Fisher, who I, this is his club. Oh. And one of the things that you talk about is that you and your your partner actually tried to keep him out of the game once you rigged it because you liked him. I think you call him a good family man. Uh, but he, he liked the heat so much that you couldn't do it. You, without telling him what you were actually doing, you couldn't really keep him away from the game. But I, I noticed that like at the end of the day, you'd slip him 50 Deutschmarks or something like that, maybe help cover his loss a little bit. So it, it seems as though you had devised your own code of honor. It might not be the exact same code of honor that everybody else has, because you're running hustles after all, but you had certain ideas about who you liked and who you didn't like, who you were willing to victimize and who, who you weren't. Yeah, well, first, I just want to say that I'm by no means a con man, but I had a great imagination and I had a big heart. I had uh, I had a pair, uh, I had a good heart. I, I, I like to Experiment and and, uh, and a, a guy like Fisher. I I found out in in my fifty years of gambling that most of the people I beat for big money could have been my friend. They were good guys. They were good human beings. They were classy. Uh, they were just good people. And and I reflect back and I look at that and and uh, it was just a, a pattern that was always there for me. And I used to feel bad about beating them. In the meantime, I had to pay the mortgage. <laughs> and that was the name of the game. So, Maria, th- you know, this um, I-, I think in, in analyzing con men who are a little bit different from what the kind of hustle that Jack does, um, you-, you talk about a dark triad. That's Machiavellianism, narcissism and s- psychopathy uh, and that it's sort of there in different mixes and different blends. Did you find con artists who who tried anyway to think about this? kind of the way Jack's describing, to try to occasionally to think with their hearts instead of with their heads? 
Well, I think that a lot of con artists will tell you that that's how they think. Um, I don't know that we can necessarily believe them because they are incredibly good at rationalizing the people that they're taking advantage of as either greedy or deserving it in some way, shape, or form. That's where the narcissism comes in. They say, I'm not taking this from you because I'm a bad person. I'm taking it from you because I deserve it more because, you know, I, I'm the one who should be, who should have this, not you. And so I think all of them on some level think of themselves as good human beings. So this guy that I follow throughout the book, Ferdinand Waldo Damara, Fred Damara, if you listen to his own descriptions of himself, he is the nicest, kindest, best guy that you will ever meet. And yet then when you look at what he does, I mean, this guy didn't just ruin lives. He put lives in physical danger. He operated on people, actually cut them open without a high school degree. And yet if you talk to him, he'd say, oh, I'm, I'm actually a really kind, big-hearted man. And, you know, I never took advantage of anyone who didn't have it coming to them. You know, I want to ask you about him, too, because he's, a, he's very similar. If people have watched the movie, catch, catch me if you can. He's kind of a similar story to Frank Abagnale, a guy who could just take on different identities, uh, often using Jack's technique, also putting a uniform on. Somehow other people uh, believe you're a pilot or a doctor or whatever. If you're wearing the right, right clothing, that's just an, uh, enough. But, you know, with all of these guys, uh, Maria, I feel as though they're, they're so smart and so talented that they really could have done just fine um, in the legit world. You know, I mean, this guy uh, that you're talking about who was able to slip into so many jobs and, in fact, operate pretty successfully in just unbelievably adverse conditions. He's on a pitching aircraft carrier or some kind of uh, naval boat, and he's operating from a textbook or some guide he's been given by some other doctor, and he's operating pretty successfully on people. He's not a doctor. That's that's a guy with incredible skills and resources. And uh, Uh, why, why not? just, you know, take all that keen intelligence that he has or that Jack has and, you know, be his CEO and make billions of dollars. You know, that's such a great question because so many of these con artists are remarkably intelligent and talented human beings. And you look at it and you say, my God, if you just invested this energy into something legitimate, the world would be a much better place. But for them, I think it's a matter of mindset. There's something about getting away with it. Because it's not like it's less work. It's actually a lot of work to craft a false identity to keep this deception going. You have to you have to work just as hard as you would at most jobs. But they, I think two things happen. One is that they really get a rise out of that sense of power over other people. The ones that I spoke with, you could tell that they really love what they do. They love taking advantage of people. And they think that it's just a total rush saying, you know what, I'm affecting your life and you don't even know it. So I think that's part of it. And the other part of it is that to them, it seems like a shortcut. They think they deserve it now. They think they're smarter than the guys with the PhD, but they don't want to take 10 years to get their PhD. So they're going to give it to themselves now because they think they deserve it. So they're just going to, you know, take those 10 years and wipe them out. You know, Jack, what about this? You're, you were nodding when I said this before. You're obviously a really smart guy, and you have these incredible skills. You could have probably made a lot of money in the real estate market. Uh, you, there's a lot of ways you could have made a lot of money. And there's certainly people listening, particularly if you've seen the movie The Big Short, who are thinking, well, the CEOs are. They're, they're just a different version of that. They wear different clothes and they do different stuff. But they rig games just the same way Jack's putting uh, his own dice or cards into a game. Boy, if you look at what happened in 2008, it does look like something very 
similar happen at a much higher level. But do you ever think about that, that maybe your life could have been easier uh, just taking all the smarts that you've got and using them a different way? Yeah, Colin, I think about it almost every day. And and uh, <clears throat> I'll be honest that I loved my job. I loved what I did <laughs> in life. It was exciting. I was getting to, I got a lot of attention I was the I was the the main guy. Things didn't start until I showed up, and uh, it was just an exciting life. And and uh, but I have so many regrets now because I I realized that that after all is said and done, I cheated myself mm. because I think I could have done much better than what I did. In fact, I know I could have. And and if I had to do it over again, no, I would not. I would not do it. And, and every and for the past two years, I've been thinking about the stress factor involved, and it really didn't affect me at the time, but it bothers me now. It really bothers me that I put myself through all that. You know. Well, obviously, there, there's an incredible amount of stress in this, right? I mean, the, the problem with being a, an adrenaline junkie is you ride out those incredible highs where your system is just racing uh, at this incredible space, and then you crash down to these other lows, and I'm sure it takes a toll on your body, your psyche, your heart, everything, right? Yes, and, and I would, uh, a number of places that I gambled in, I, would, I knew the problem going in that I would have a problem if I got caught and and a lot of, not a lot of times, maybe a dozen times, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, I would sit in my car and I would meditate for a half hour, an hour. And I would tell myself over and over, Jack, you, you're the best at what you're doing. Nobody knows what you're doing. So go in and do it. <clears throat> and I would. <laughs> so this, is, this absolutely needs to be a movie. All right, let's, I want to grab a quick call here uh, from, let's see, Peter <clears throat> in Mansfield. Hi, Peter, you're on the air. Hi, Colin. Um, yeah, I have a question about a con that was played on a friend of mine almost 50 years ago. Um, he was a pretty streetwise kid who went to New York. And what he told me was that he was in Times Square and somebody approached him and made some kind of a proposition that involved him doing something and getting very well paid for it, like transporting some money across to the other side of the city. But that to prove that he was trustworthy... They had to do a few things. So the con artist, as I recall, gave him $100, said, put it in your pocket, walk around the block, and let me see whether I can trust you. So he did that. And then the second part of it was that then my friend had to give him, the con artist, $100, and he was going to walk around the block so that they could see whether they could trust each other. And, of course, the con artist didn't come back. All right, this... And I'm just wondering whether... Your, your guests have heard of that and can add any more detail because my friend is no longer alive, and I've always wondered what ha- happened. Right. Well, this is certainly in Maria's book, and it's also um, straight out of a movie that both Maria and I really love a lot called House of Games. Uh, so, Maria, one of the things that uh, Joe Mantegna says in House of Games when he's instructing Lindsey Krauss on how you do this, he, he, says, he says, the first thing I, he, he shows her a con, and then he says, you notice the first thing I did. I offered you something. I offer you something before I ask for anything. Absolutely. And that is one of the first things you have to do. So after the put-up, after you've done the psychological profiling, you establish trust. And one of the ways of doing this is to take advantage of the fact that people are actually going to trust you. Now, you know that you're not trustworthy. They don't know that. And they think that you're actually a trustworthy person because you've trusted them. And so many cons operate exactly the way that your friend was conned, where 
you have legitimate money being given to you, and then you end up with nothing because then that money's taken away and your money is taken away and it's never coming back. And you don't see it coming because to you, this was an exercise in trust. And if that person gave you $100, well, that person couldn't have possibly been a con artist, right? Because you could have just walked off. Right. And so, Jack, I'm assuming the gambling version of this is you just don't start out beating somebody. You let somebody else win or you play it straight for a while. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me, yes. And uh, a lot of occasions when we uh, key in on maybe one individual, like one time in, in Hanover, Germany, uh, we were beating a German guy that had just sold two businesses. And and this is the other part that we're, when people are vulnerable, that's when they're they're uh, when they're most vulnerable. That's when you can beat them for a lot of money. And he was going through a divorce. He had plenty of money, and and he was drinking every day. And I had a phone call at four o'clock in the morning. Two days later, I was in Hanover, <clears throat> and we were beating this this individual significantly. And uh, uh, he, uh, one of my partners, who was his partner, but uh, one of uh, he. Uh, what he did is he showed him how to how to beat me mm -hmm. uh, by by using two dice that had double fives as opposed to two and five. He had two fives instead of the two, and uh, he went for it and he started playing with those two dice. But in the meantime, I was switching dice in and out, and he <laughs> lost the the larceny caught him. Right. The larceny caught him, and and we beat him for a very significant amount of money. Right. This is also um, in Maria's book, too, the examples of people who— The reverse who, con. The reverse con, people who think that they're conning and they're getting conned. Exactly. All right. So we're going to take a break. We're going to talk about art fraud, too, here. Uh, it's uh, an amazing and very colorful show here today. We'll be back with more. I'm on it. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, Kyone Wolf. Our interns are Sarah Flaherty and Stephanie Reef. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. The part of Bill Curry was played by Guy claiming to be Bill Curry. For show pages, articles, and a PDF of the Here and Now staff's title to the Brooklyn Bridge, visit our website, WNPR.org slash Colin. On tomorrow's show, the nose wonders why Sean Penn didn't get an Oscar nomination for his portrayal of a journalist. And now... Back to Colin. Yeah, we got a lot of things to talk about in the news tomorrow, but we got a lot of things to talk about today, too. Uh, in the studio with me is Fast Jack. That's the name of his book, and that's who he is. He's John Farrell. Fast Jack, the last hustler. Uh, and by the way, uh, later today up on our website, uh, but after the show, Jack's going to do some uh, work with dice, uh, dice, just dice or dice and cards. Dice and cards. Dice. So he's going to do some. He'll show, maybe he might even show you how to do the the, the cold load and all this stuff. Uh, and uh, the uh, filmmaking auteur Ryan King is going to um, shoot all that. So we'll have a video up on a line later today. You can see how Jack did what he did. Uh, in the good old days. Also with us in the studio uh, 
in New York is Maria Konnikova. Her book is The Confidence Game, Why We Fall for It Every Time. Um, and we're also going to talk a little bit now about um, another aspect of, of this, and that is um, art fraud. Art fraud is uh, in sort of in a category all by itself, but it also uh, has some things in common with what we're talking about uh, right now. Uh, you probably uh, follow some of the big stories uh, involving this, and uh, Anthony Amore is right at the heart uh, of this. He's director of security at Isabella Gardner Museum and the author of most recently, The Art of the Con, The Most Notorious Fakes, Frauds, and Forgeries in the Art World. So, first of all, welcome to the conversation. Thank you, Colin. Um, and so um, we should say that, I mean, first of all, uh, some of the stuff that we've been talking about is about as old as the human race and uh, the kind of stuff that you write about, uh, art forgeries, are certainly about as old as the nation. So tell us about the first one, the uh, the Gilbert Stewart one. Well, first of all, you make a good point. I, I say a lot of times in lectures that I think the first art forgery was the day after the first caveman drew something on a wall, <laughs> and that guy drew something the next day claiming it was an original. But, uh, yeah, the first one uh, in the United States took place uh, when we were a uh, brand-new country, and uh, Gilbert Stewart had painted the seminal piece uh, of uh, the depiction of George Washington, who I think nowadays we, we don't even understand just how he was the most famous person in the world, not just in America at his time. And everybody wanted to see what he looked like, and everybody wanted an, an image. So Stuart, who, was, um, who died broke, had uh, protected the painting that he did, the famous Antonium portrait that you see in the $1 bill. He protected that image very carefully. A uh, ship's captain came to him looking to buy a copy, and um, Stuart uh, it, it would interview people, making sure these weren't going to be used to be mass-produced. And uh, a guy named Captain Jack Swords came to him and assured him he was only purchasing the image, uh, the painting, to give to a gentleman friend in Virginia. So Stuart trusted him and sold it to him, and then Swords took it and sailed directly to China, where he had uh, 100 copies made, and brought them back to the United States. And, um, and they're, they're all over the place. These, these are still out there, scattered around the country. You know, um, Maria, you've got some stories about um, uh, art forgery and art fraud in, in your book, too. And, and we did a whole show about this uh, a couple of years ago. And one thing that I noticed talking to a guy who does it is the people who do the forgeries. Now, this is a little diff bit different than the hundreds of skilled uh, artisans in, in China. But the people who do it kind of one-on-one take a lot of pride in what they do. A lot of them wind up kind of going legit, or some of them have wound up going legit afterwards. And they, when, they want you to know they're good artists. Absolutely. So one art forger that I spoke with, Ken Perenni, who spent multiple decades creating uh, forgeries, some of them from classical American art like Butterworth. He, uh, he, his claim to fame is that he, his Butterworth was on the cover of not one but two auction houses. I believe both Christie's and Sotheby's bore his cover art. That's how good he was. And he thinks that the people who fell for it, well, they deserve to fall for it because if you can't tell the difference between what he does and the real thing, then why in the world should you have the real thing? And he wants everyone to know. He is so proud of what he does because he says, I am a brilliant painter and people should know this. And he still paints today. He paints legitimate forgeries, so he doesn't actually sign them. Um, but he sells them and people buy them. And he says that some of his clients 
actually try to pass them off as the real thing and usually succeed. You know, Anthony, these things are often very hard to detect, and sometimes it's the this minutiae, the accidental right-handed brushstroke in a Da Vinci, uh, or, or, and sometimes it's what they almost call the, they, they do, I think Thomas Hoven called it the, the sixth sense that a connoisseur has, just a nose for it, you know, this is or this isn't. But we've got a lot of new technology now, and I'm wondering, is it is that making it easier to be a forger or easier to detect a forgery or both? It makes it uh, a bit easier to detect a forgery, but um, it's not just the technology. The key is the person who applies the technology has to have a real strong understanding of art history and of conservation techniques. You need sort of that trifecta to be really good at detecting this art. I think one of the keys, now Ken Perenni is a very good artist, but one of the things that I found in, in, in you know, my day job looking for stolen art is that um, it, you, know, you, you encounter a lot of fraud, and there's a, a lot of very good forgers. Um, I, I work across the street from an art school. I mean, there's dozens of students in there who can recreate these paintings. Uh, but, of course, when you get into the, the um, minutia, like you mentioned, about the pigments and, and sorts of things, that's where they get caught. Mm-hmm. But the, the key to the whole con, the, the key to the whole forgery game, is what Jack talked about earlier, that vulnerability. Yeah. And you have these people who are looking to purchase something uh, very, very expensive so that they can be the person who found what no one else could find. That's their vulnerability. They well, want to believe they found something special. That's how they prey on them. We're, we're almost completely out of time, and I, I could do a whole other show here with um, Anthony Amore. But, Jack, just to prove that everybody who's ever done anything of this kind is in Jack's book, Robert Gentile. I don't know if that's how you say his name, right? He's, he's in your book, and he's, he's been the guy that they've been sweating, the FBI has been sweating over the, the Gardner heist. And he's a guy you know, right? Well, I'm sure Anthony knows also that, that uh, Bob, uh, Gentile and I have been neighbors in Manchester for over 50 years, and he's been an on-again, off-again friend of mine for over 50 years, and we parted ways about eight years ago. And, and uh, yeah, yeah, uh, I probably know more about Gentile than, than, than anyone. All right. Well, we have to stop it there. But uh, let me once again thank Maria Konnikova. Her book is The Confidence Game, Why We Fall For It Every Time. Uh, Fast Jack is the book by John Farrell, a memoir of being the last hustler. Uh, Anthony and Anthony Amore, The Art of the Con, The Most Notorious Fakes, Frauds, and Forgeries in the Art World. That's it for today. Thanks to everybody. We'll be back tomorrow. Like a fool, I let you break my heart. I'm a pro at being calm. Welcome to American Bank. How may I help you? Hi. I'd like to wire this money to Nigeria, please. Uh, is it going to a representative of a Nigerian prince who needs to transfer $40 million obtained from an oil account but cannot use an African bank and therefore needs your assistance? Mm-hmm. Okay. There will be a $10,000 bank fee for that made out to me. Very good. <laughs> 